At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. The Washington Post's choice of its headline was the Mar-a-Lago workers moving boxes full of classified documents the day before the Justice Department stopped by to pick up what it had subpoenaed. But that's not the actual headline in the Washington Post story. And the actual headline in the Washington Post story is really startling. It could be the biggest in this week-long festival of leaks. This waterfall of sources say Jack Smith is doing this. Because this leak, the one the Post did not think was the headline, suggests the special counsel is going to charge Donald Trump not just with obstruction, but with espionage. Quote, Prosecutors have gathered evidence indicating that Trump at times kept classified documents in his office, in a place where they were visible, and sometimes showed them to others. They have been told by more than one witness that Trump at times kept classified documents out in the open in his Florida office, where others could see them and sometimes showed them to people, including aides and visitors, unquote. So that is literally textbook espionage. Ten years or fine or both per count. 18 U.S. Code 793, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information. Paragraph E, keeping classified documents is one thing, but having unauthorized possession of any document relating to the national defense and then willfully communicates, delivers, transmits, or causes to be communicated to any person not entitled to receive it, that is the point, the transmission, the communication, that is the point at which the option not to prosecute for espionage has typically ended. Now, Trump keeping classified documents in his office and showing them to people, including aides and visitors, and Mar-a-Lago newlyweds and golfers and passersby and Lord knows who else is thus way more egregious. But as I have mentioned before, it also comes with a complication. Trump has satisfactorily fuzzed up this declassification idea that he could conceivably get away with it by quoting that first part in that statute about unauthorized possession and insists, no, I granted myself authorized possession. And it's nonsensical but stuck under the nose of the correct judge, like one he himself appointed, and the espionage stuff could disappear from the counts. The rest of what is in the Washington Post report is about the much more straightforward charges that a different part of the piece implies are clearly happening soon. And I'll get to that clearly happening soon part in a minute. The Post reports boxes were moved by Mar-a-Lago staffers under the guidance of the valet, Walt Nauda, which we knew. It's been reported for months. It's what's on the security video, some of which may have been deleted from the security video. 
The Post also has the colorful anecdote that Trump had a dress rehearsal for moving these boxes even before the subpoena got there. The Post has the lawyer for one of the Nauta crew saying his client was loading boxes onto an SUV a year ago next Saturday, and they've been showing video of that since literally last summer. Remember the SUV parked next to the private jet with bankers boxes being loaded from the car to the plane bound for Trump's golf course and cemetery in Bedminster, New Jersey, a year ago next Saturday. And don't forget it, Bedminster, if your ball gets stuck in soft ground near the tee. Do not reach into the ground. Do not reach into the ground at Bedminster at the first hole. What? You never saw the movie Carrie? Wandered off again, sorry. All of that stuff goes to willful retention of those documents, especially the idea of a rehearsal for hiding the boxes. And it again renders actual classified status irrelevant because obstruction of justice is still obstruction of justice If the government has subpoenaed the documents and you say you are going to give them the documents and you say you are giving them the documents and then you say you have given them the documents, then it turns out, no, you deliberately hid some of the documents and the government does not have them. And, oh, by the way, practiced hiding them. At that point, it doesn't matter what the documents are. They don't have to be classified. They could be old scripts of the Countdown podcast. There were two other items in the Post's report that you can think about over the holiday weekend because they imply his judgment cometh and that right soon. Quote, the grand jury working on the investigation apparently has not met since May 5, after months of frenetic activity at the federal courthouse in Washington, which can only mean Smith is A, already done, or B, he's about to be done, or C, he has another grand jury elsewhere collecting some final evidence. And then there's the quote that suggests the correct answer is A, he's done. Quote, People familiar with the situation said Smith's team believes it has uncovered a handful of distinct episodes of obstructionist conduct. For that to be correct, it requires that Smith's team has everything it needs to conclude anything. If Smith's team believes it has found multiple distinct episodes of obstructionist conduct, and if Smith's team has shared this with anybody, like whoever then shared it with the Washington Post, it means they've got indictments ready. I know, I know, MDS, Mueller derangement syndrome, I know, I know, I know. So also, a little more on Ron DeSantis and that wonderful unplanned moment of silence for his presidential campaign during his presidential campaign announcement on whatever is left of the website formerly known as Twitter. The website platformer has the technical explanation. It is not, in fact, a technical explanation. It is an explanation of cheapness. Quote, perhaps the most important thing to know about Space's technical problems Over the past several months, Musk cut the Spaces team, which once numbered as many as 100 employees, down to roughly three people. Three people. Wait, there's more. Quote, Musk's own Twitter app crashed repeatedly during the event, we're told. Nice work, Elmo. And it turns out there have been two other Ron glitches. As Axios reported, the promotional video for the campaign launch you couldn't hear on Twitter spaces, it was, as we say in the business, sweetened. The pack never backed down took a speech by DeSantis in Port St. Lucie, Florida, on November 5th, 2022, a speech which was not during a military flyover, and it used AI to add in fighter jets in the sky over DeSantis's shoulder and also the whoosh they made. Then, last night, DeSantis resumed his TV tour, his We Should Watch, Things Are Going So Badly, Maybe a Studio Light Will Fall on Him TV tour. He went on the Eric Bowling Show on Newsmax. Yes, that's the one that's been beating Anderson Cooper in the ratings. And mid-interview, the split screen of Bowling and DeSantis froze. But the audio continued. So you saw bowling, eyes almost completely closed, looking stoned. In other words, looking like he always does. And DeSantis, eyebrows locked 
in the upright position and shoulders hunched and frozen in a way that made him look shorter than he even is. All the time, DeSantis kept talking without moving his mouth. I mean, at some point, you may want to look into whether or not all these things are signs, Rhonda. And Elmer Stewart Rhodes will go to jail insisting he is a political prisoner. And guess what? He's not. And the judge who sentenced him yesterday said plain of day, he's not. Judge Amit Mehta sentenced the founder of the Oath Keepers to 18 years in prison for his role in January 6th. And he sentenced Kelly Meggs of the Oath Keepers to 12 years. And after Rhodes then went off in one of his angry rationalizations about saving the country, Judge Mehta silenced Rhodes and per reporters on the scene, silenced the courtroom itself when he then said, we all now hold our collective breaths with an election approaching. Will we have another January 6th? Somebody gets it. All this you probably already knew. What you may not know was uncovered by David Kurtz of TPM, who decided to examine his website's archives to see if his memory was correct and that they had been covering roads for years, long before he descended into vigilantism and delusions of grandeur and sedition. Rhodes was once a Ron Paul staffer. He was at Yale Law. He started the Oath Keepers in 2009, and within months, literally on February 19, 2010, in a suit and a tie, and before he allegedly lost an eye after dropping his gun while he was serving as a gun safety instructor, he got his first national exposure. The first national television hit for Stuart Rhodes, his first step down the public path to 18 years in prison for sedition. And who platformed him first? Where was Stuart Rhodes' first national TV Oath Keepers interview? It was on Fox News with Bill O'Reilly. I told you so. All right, let me leave you laughing. Trump Jr. trying to insult DeSantis, but instead swapping his own father's name for DeSantis and winding up insulting dad. Check. And dad thinking as he's talking about Jack Smith that the upcoming vote is the 2020 election. Check. Policy grounds or personality. Trump has the charisma of a mortician and the energy that makes Jack Smith. He's a harasser and an abuser of our people in order to obstruct and interfere with the 2020 presidential election. That's why they're doing it. Geniuses, father and son. So it's Memorial Day weekend, and I will have a podcast for you on Monday. And I'm not sure if it will be new or old or half and half because we have all kinds of possible breaking news, although I really doubt Trump will be indicted on Memorial Day weekend. Then again, I didn't think Ronna McDaniel would say that a default on the national debt would bode well for the Republican presidential candidates, confirming that the Republican Party has completely lost any understanding that its political posturing and judicial and legislative terrorism has actual consequences, including, in this case, immeasurable damage to the very corporations that own said Republican presidential candidates. Losing understanding that what you do and say means more than just points on some scoreboard that exists only in your own head, that it affects the real world and people's lives. This may be the theme of America in the 21st century. It happens everywhere. It has happened at MSNBC. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. I was surprised to be going through my notes and find that this moment of confession was seven years ago this week. I may have indicated that I lament what one of my inventions, MSNBC, has become. It has slipped from analysis and cynicism into talking points and posturing and cheerleading, and if NBC suddenly wanted it to be a right-wing operation, a lot of the hosts could stay and just grow mustaches or dye their hair or use aliases because it long ago ceased to be about the issues and instead became about them. The good news for MSNBC in this context is that CNN is a tire fire with no signs of dying down. The bad news is... The political spectrum needs a healthy, robust MSNBC advocating from the liberal point of view, but just as importantly, pushing Democrats to actually earn our support. The entire primetime lineup at MSNBC still consists of, depending on the night, either only people who were my guest hosts who we spun off into their own shows, or them and another person we considered for doing that with, but she could not be bothered to learn how to use a teleprompter. Most of them turned out, personally, sadly, to have been false friends and mercilessly ambitious and brutal. In short, I never saw any of this coming. On the other hand, one day, one of them admitted it. Early on the afternoon of Monday, May 23rd, 2016... I bounced out of my New York City apartment building, began to walk past the tourist trap brunch spot in the lobby, and froze. There, at one of the cramped outdoor tables, staring up at me in blank surprise, that must have matched my own staring down at him in blank surprise, was Lawrence O'Donnell. I decided to go silly. Hey, get out of my house. He laughed. I laughed. It didn't seem forced. He introduced me to his companion, his daughter. This, my dear, is Keith Olbermann. Keith started us all at MSNBC, and then he left, and... And here, Lawrence gave one of his long pauses, and we crashed it. I wanted to be generous. I started to politely contradict him, and I just couldn't do it. Um, yeah, pretty much. Anyway... About 30 seconds of courteous nothingness followed, and I wished the O'Donnells well, and then I left. It was the most pleasant experience I ever had with Lawrence O'Donnell. In fact, it might have been the only pleasant experience I ever had with Lawrence O'Donnell. After I finally convinced and bullied and blackmailed MSNBC management into letting Rachel Maddow become the regular guest host for my show, and she aced it, and then rightly got her own show, and she aced that, and became a star, I went looking for a new guest host. My first idea was a frequent guest we had named Chris Hayes. I didn't get far. Management had its own idea, and my input was not required. They wanted former Vermont governor and Democratic presidential hopeful Howard Dean. And Howard is a really smart guy and great on TV, but Howard had a bit of a teleprompter problem. One of my producers swears that Howard once read, Good evening, I'm Howard. Dean, former governor of Vermont, this is Countdown. I do know whatever he did on the air, it was bad enough that one week 
when I was off and at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, and a baseball news story broke and he was filling in for me, my producers called me there and asked me to come on from the streets of Cooperstown and be a guest on my own show just to help Howard Dean out. Anyway, their next idea was a guy who had been kicking around MSNBC since its founding in 1996. Lawrence O'Donnell was one of the original MSNBC friends. The MSNBC friends. Political pundits who sat on clear stools at a clear table or in a set designed to look like a booth at a coffee shop. No, I'm not making this up. Among the friends were Ann Coulter and Laura Ingram, if you can believe it. Once or twice an hour, the rather CNN-like all-news coverage on MSNBC in its first couple of years would pause, and three or more of these friends would appear, chew over the MSNBC headlines, and then disappear. Lawrence O'Donnell was one of the friends. It was as bad as it sounds. Then Lawrence O'Donnell pretty much disappeared. You would see him on MSNBC as a guest every once in a while, but mostly he pursued his acting and producing career. He played President Bartlett's father on the West Wing, the one who beat him throughout college. Lawrence was very convincing. And then around 2008, we started getting pressure to bring him in as a guest on Countdown, like once a week or twice a week. I was not sure what that was all about, but he had been a Senate staffer, and he knew the health care debate and other wonky stuff pretty well, so I gave my assent for whatever that was worth. Not long after that, Lawrence came into my office. He really needed my support, he said, to get him more involved in MSNBC. He knew I had gone to bat for Rachel, and before her, I'd gone to bat for Tom Brokaw, and for people like Chuck Todd and Chris Hayes and others who are now getting steady incomes from NBC. I don't remember his argument on his own behalf. I do remember I didn't have much of a reason to say no, and he wasn't asking me to do a lot, so I said yes. The next thing I knew, I was reading a memo announcing that Lawrence O'Donnell had been appointed as the new full-time guest host of Countdown. This was in the winter of 2009-2010, when my late dad was fighting so valiantly to stay alive after colon cancer and, more importantly, a series of infections. Dad had the immune system of an alien. The average white cell count in a healthy adult is between 4,000 and 11,000. One night, Dad's was at 33,000. And the doctors told me to prepare to make the call to let him go. They had one antibiotic left to try on him. The next morning, Dad's white cell count, which had been 33,000, was 8,000. Onward, he fought. Unfortunately... He was 80 years old, and he had not exercised since Harry Truman was president, and eventually he ran out of Houdini tricks. I had been visiting him twice a day for six months while still doing Countdown and the NBC Sunday Night Football show, but now, as it hit late February of 2010, his bright days became fewer and farther in between, and the hope that was propelling me to keep being his full-time caregiver and Countdown's full-time host both began to fade. In the last two weeks of my dad's life, as the doctors tried all the long-shot things, I asked MSNBC for a leave of absence. Finally, the inevitability became inarguable, and we let dad go on Saturday, March 13, 2010. My sister held his hand, and I read him his favorite Thurber story, and as soon as I finished it, he exhaled deeply and peacefully, and he died. I think I took another week off, maybe two and I vaguely recall emails from friends at Countdown that I may have paid passing attention to, but I really didn't. Most of the staff, including people who came up from Washington, like Howard Feynman or Gene Robinson of the Washington Post, always friends to me. They attended my dad's memorial service. I believe Lawrence O'Donnell, who was, of course, filling in for me on Countdown, was there too, but maybe not. I do not remember. And then came the day when I went back to the office full-time and my assistant grabbed me. Both hands on my wrist. You did not answer my emails, she said with a fervency she rarely exhibited. For God's sake, do not ever leave me alone with Lawrence O'Donnell again. I snapped back to attention. Had he, you know, bothered her? Not that way, she said, but he's a son of a bitch. 
He treats me and everybody who isn't a producer here like dirt. And since you didn't read my emails, I just have to tell you this. He's trying to get you fired so he can take over Countdown. And if you think he's nuts, one of your senior producers is in on it too, with him. I have to admit, even now, of all the things I went through at that very, very strange place, MSNBC, even now, this story still shocks me. The senior producers of Countdown consisted of a guy who'd been a producer who booked satellite transmissions for MSNBC until I asked that he be promoted. And one was a guest booker for the daytime shows until I asked that she be promoted. Another was a line producer who was well-regarded only for his ability to time a show until I asked for him to be promoted. And then there was the old friend of mine who had been blown out of ESPN in a sexual harassment porn link email scandal and was headed back to college to start his career all over again until I asked that he be hired and then promoted. I did some digging and I was going to confront O'Donnell about it when somebody told me he had tweeted something negative about me and about Countdown. So I got a hold of him and I said this did not seem to be in keeping with MSNBC traditions and rules you know, the ones about not peeing inside the tent. And he said, what do you know about MSNBC traditions? I've been here since 1996. I never left and came back. So I went to my boss, the president of the network, Phil Griffin, the one who would not hire Rachel Maddow. And before I could say they'd have to get rid of him, Griffin said it was all academic. They were preparing the press release as we spoke for Lawrence's new show at 10 o'clock called The Last Word. And oh, by the way, Keith, two of your senior producers are going with him to run his show. If this sounds vaguely familiar to you, it is the plot of the pilot for the old Aaron Sorkin HBO series Newsroom. I was still friendly with Aaron then, so he actually asked, as I related this to him in real time, in emails and phone calls, he asked if he could use it in the plot rather than just what he often did, which was to use it without asking. The problem was, none of this made any sense in the real world, although it made a pretty good pilot for Aaron Sorkin. In going into the 10 p.m. slot, Lawrence O'Donnell would be replacing a rerun of Countdown. And even if O'Donnell did much better in the ratings, much, much better, there was no way it could ever make enough money to make the move make sense. O'Donnell's new show would necessarily cost MSNBC between 10 and $15 million to produce every year. Didn't have anything to do with him. That was the cost. The countdown rerun cost not $10, $15 million a year. It count however much they paid the guy who pushed the play button that fired up the videotape of the countdown replay amortized. Later that day, a sympathetic NBC executive called me up and explained the move to me. First, Griffin was convinced O'Donnell was about to leave us and sign with CNN. I said, well, that's a good idea for everybody involved except CNN. Turned out CNN had not even talked to him, but Griffin did not know that. More importantly, Comcast had already finalized its agreement to buy NBC effective the following January. And as part of the deal, they were entitled to review what all the executives in the company had done. And they had already looked at MSNBC President Phil Griffin and discovered he had never done anything. In panic, Griffin told colleagues he had to launch a new show of his own immediately. This is the series Aaron Sorkin should have made. As to the producers who left my show to go with O'Donnell while my father was dying, one of them told me a couple of years after she left MSNBC for the last time, every day when I went into that last word office, I realized you were getting your revenge on me without even having to lift a finger. Lots of people I've worked with, probably a majority of people I've helped, have behaved like Lawrence O'Donnell because remember, it's television, it is a mental illness, The comparatively healthy people are the ones who acknowledge it's a mental illness. But Lawrence O'Donnell was something special. A year before my dad died, almost to the day, in fact, I was in Los Angeles appearing on Bill Maher's show. And one of the other guests that night was the actress Carrie Washington. She was very nice to me, very sweet, a very big fan. And she asked to stay in touch. 
Sure enough, after my father died, after the memorial, after I was back at work, I had to go to his house for the first time since he had passed away. It was about as much fun as it sounds. In the car on the way back into New York City, the solemnity of it. Both my parents died within 11 months of each other. It really hit me for some reason for the first time full force. And I was about to lose it when the car approached a billboard overlooking the West Side Highway in New York City. And whose big smiling face was on the ad on that billboard? Kerry Washington. And it flashed me right back to her kindness in L.A., and it helped me overcome this bump in my morning. So I wanted to drop her a note. Nothing big. Nothing suggestive. I wasn't hinting at asking her out. Just, you never know how you might help somebody in a time of crisis. Thanks for letting me smile. That was the whole message. I asked my assistant to figure out how to get it to her, and that was the end of it. Except, a week later, the fact that I wrote her a note wound up in a column written by Ann Coulter. I was astonished. How? Why? Ann Coulter? It was her usual, the brain doesn't quite work right kind of stuff. She implied I was hitting on Kerry Washington and said how stupid I had to be to not realize she was involved with somebody and on and on and on. No mention of my father's passing or the Mar show or the billboard or her smiling face. I went back to my assistant and I said, hey, uh, what on earth did you do with that note to Kerry Washington? And she said, oh, I gave it to this uh, Lawrence O'Donnell guy. And I said, good God, why did you do that? And she said, well, he's dating Kerry Washington. I thought you knew that. I thought that's why you asked me to get it to her. So it wasn't hard to figure out from there. Lawrence had called his old friend from the old MSNBC Friends of 1996, Ann Coulter, and told her about the note, inventing whatever motive his jealous little mind could dream up. It should have gotten him fired from NBC, but unfortunately his boss was just as much of a 14-year-old emotionally as he was. And meanwhile, I had decided to get out of MSNBC anyway when the time was ripe. As it turned out, it ripened in January of 2011. I've told that story in other episodes, like 60 of them. It's kind of complicated. And since nobody ever actually asked me why Countdown, the TV show, ended, I've probably got another 60 episodes worth of information about that. Anyway... In 2015, since repeatedly over the following 10 years, there were overtures by both sides to bring Countdown and me back to MSNBC. In 2015, during the World Series, in fact, the then president of NBC News, Andy Lack, asked me to come back and do a new show at MSNBC and move to Los Angeles and have a co-host, a conservative, and not do any commentaries. And, and actually, this new show was somehow less appealing than it sounds. But the punchline of all punchlines is contained in what Lack wanted to call my new 2015 MSNBC show that never was. It tells you all you really need to know about the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell and MSNBC and O'Donnell's place in TV history and its demise and the end of MSNBC. NBC News President Lack was brimming with enthusiasm about this name that he had come up with for my new show. I've got the perfect title, Lack told me. We're going to call it The Last Word with Keith Olbermann. And I didn't laugh or guffaw. I just said, Andy, you have a show called The Last Word. The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Andy Lack now laughed. <laughs> Hopefully not for much longer, I don't. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Still ahead on Countdown Fridays with Thurber and my father's favorite Thurber story of many favorites. It's the one he liked best. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help every dog has its day. Sam warms up from shy to friendly to silently resting her head in your lap. She's 47 pounds, mixed breed, a golden brown, two years old, and she was dumped at the kill shelter in New York by her humans after some kind of altercation, they said, with her sister. Nobody knows what happened, but it was Sam who wound up with bite marks. And with that kind of history, even if it was all made up, the New York Pound will kill her sooner rather than later. She can be adopted by almost anybody on the East Coast. She's ready to go. Or you can pledge to make a donation to help a rescue pull her. If she does not make it out, you're under no obligation. If she does, we'll let you know how to fulfill your pledge. Look for Sam, photos and video of her on my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Sam thanks you. Number one story on the countdown and Fridays with Thurber. And I don't know when I went to Sullivan became my father's favorite Thurber story. I suspect it was in the hospital when I was reading to him in the last six months of his life. I know I read it to him at least half a dozen times. The first five by his request. The last time he did not request it. In fact, and this is the most perverse kind of compliment I think any writer has ever received. I read this story to him. It was the last thing that I read to him. In fact, it was the last thing he did on Earth was to listen to this story in a state of semi-consciousness. He waited till the end of it. He took one deep, satisfied breath and he died. I don't recommend this, but I think it does speak to the quality of the writing. I went to Sullivan by James Thurber. I was reminded the other morning by what I don't remember, and it doesn't matter, of a crisp September morning last year when I went to the Grand Central to see a little boy of 10 get excitedly on a special coach that was to take him to a boys' school somewhere north of Boston. He had never been away to school before. The coach was squirming with youngsters. You could tell after a while the novitiates, shining and tremulous and a little awed, from the more aloof boys who had been away to school before. But they were very much alike at first glance. There was, for me, in case you thought I was leading up to that, no sharp feeling of old lost years in the tense atmosphere of that coach because I never went away to a private school when I was a little boy. I went to Sullivan School in Columbus. I thought about it as I walked back to my hotel. Sullivan was an ordinary public school, and yet it was not like any other I have ever known of. In seeking an adjective to describe the Sullivan School of my years, 1900 and 1908, I can only think of tough. Sullivan School was tough. The boys of Sullivan came mostly from the region around Central Market, a poorish district with many families of the laboring class. 
The school district also included a number of homes of the upper classes because at the turn of the century, one or two old residential streets still lingered near the shouting and rumbling of the market, reluctant to surrender their fine old houses to the encroaching rabble of commerce and become, as alas they now have, more vulgar business streets. I remember always, first of all, the Sullivant baseball team. Most grammar school baseball teams are made up of boys in the 7th and 8th grades, or they were in my day, but with Sullivant, it was different. Several of its best players were in the 4th grade, known to the teachers of the school as the Terrible 4th. In that grade, you first encountered fractions and long division, and many pupils lodged there for years like logs in a brook. Some of the more able baseball players had been in the fourth grade for seven or eight years. Then, too, there were a number of boys who had not been in the class past the normal time, but were nevertheless deep into their teens. They had avoided starting to school by eluding the truant officer until they were ready to go into long pants, but he always got them in the end. One or two of these fourth graders were 17 or 18 years old, but the dean of the squad was a tall, husky young man of 22 who was in the fifth grade. The teachers of the third and fourth had got tired of having him around as the years rolled along and had pushed him on. His name was Dana Waney, and he had a mustache. Don't ask me why his parents allowed him to stay in school so long. There were many mysteries at Sullivant that were never cleared up. All I know is why he kept on in school and didn't go to work. He liked playing on the baseball team. And he had a pretty easy time in class because the teachers had given up asking him any questions at all years before. The story was that he had answered but one question in the 17 years he had been going to classes at Sullivant, and that was, what is one use of the comma? The commie, said Dana, embarrassedly unsnarling his long legs from beneath a desk much too low for him, is used to shoot marbles with. Commies was our word for those cheap 10 for a cent marbles, in case it wasn't yours. The Sullivant School baseball team of 1905 defeated several high school teams in the city and claimed the high school championship of the state, to which title it had, of course, no technical right. I believe the boys could have proved their moral right to the championship, however, if they had been allowed to go out of town and play all the teams they challenged, such as the powerful Dayton and Toledo Nines. But their road season was called off after a terrific fight that occurred during one game at Mount Sterling or Piqua or Xenia. I can't remember which. Our first baseman, Dana Waney, crowned the umpire with a bat during an altercation over a called strike, and the fight was on. It took place in the fourth inning, so of course the game was never finished. The battle continued on down into the business section of the town and raged for hours with much destruction of property. But since Sullivan was ahead at the time 17 to nothing, there could have been no doubt as to the outcome. Nobody was killed. All of us boys were sure our team could have beaten Ohio State University that year, but they wouldn't play us. They were scared. Waney was by no means the biggest or toughest guy on the grammar school team. He was merely the oldest, being about a year the senior of Floyd, the center fielder who could jump five feet straight into the air without taking a running start. Nobody knew, not even the Board of Education, which once tried to find out whether Floyd was Floyd's first name or his last name. He apparently only had one. He didn't have any parents, and nobody, including himself, seemed to know where he lived. When teachers insisted that he must have another name to go with Floyd, he would grow sullen and ominous, and they would cease questioning him because he was a dangerous scholar in a schoolroom brawl, as Mr. Harrigan, the janitor, found out one morning when he was called in by a screaming teacher, all our teachers were women, to get Floyd under control after she had tried to whip him, and he had begun to take the room apart, beginning with the desks. Floyd broke into small pieces the switch she had used on him, 
Some said he also ate it. I don't know because I was homesick at the time with mumps or something. Harrigan was a burly, iron-muscled janitor, a man come from a long line of coal shovelers, but he was no match for Floyd, who had to be sure the considerable advantage of being more aroused than Mr. Harrigan when their fight started. Floyd had him down and was sitting on his chest in no time, and Harrigan had to promise to be good and to say, that's what I get, ten times before Floyd would let him up. I don't suppose I would ever have got through Sullivan School alive if it hadn't been for Floyd. For some reason, he appointed himself my protector, and I needed one. If Floyd was known to be on your side, nobody in the school would dare be after you and chase you home. I was one of the 10 or 15 male pupils in Sullivan School who always, or almost always, knew their lessons. And I believe Floyd admired the mental prowess of a youngster who knew how many continents there were and whether or not the sun was inhabited. Also, one time when it came to be my turn to read to the class, we used to take turns reading American history aloud, I came across the word Duquesne and knew how to pronounce it. That charmed Floyd who had been slouched in his seat, idly following the printed page of his worn and penciled textbook. How you know that was Duquesne, boy? He asked me after class. I don't know, I said. I just knew it. He looked at me with round eyes. Boy, that's something, he said. After that, word got around that Floyd would beat the tar out of anybody that messed around with me. I wore glasses from the time I was eight, and I knew my lessons, and both of those things were considered pretty terrible at Sullivan. Floyd had one idiosyncrasy, though. In the early 1900s, long, warm, furry gloves that came almost to your elbows were popular with boys, and Floyd had one of the biggest pairs in school. He wore them the year round. Dick Peterson was an even greater figure on the baseball team and in the school than Floyd was. He had a way in the classroom of blurting out a long, deep, rolling bia for no reason at all. Once he licked three boys his own size single-handed, really single-handed, for he fought with his right hand and held a mandolin in his left hand all the time. It came out uninjured. Dick and Floyd never met in mortal combat, so nobody ever knew which one could beat, and the scholars were about evenly divided in their opinions. Many a fight started among them after school when the argument came up. I think school never let out at Sullivan without at least one fight starting up, and sometimes there were as many as five or six raging between the corner of Oak and Sixth Streets and the corner of Rich and Fourth Streets four blocks away. Now and again, virtually the whole school turned out to fight the Catholic boys of the Holy Cross Academy in 5th Street near town for no reason at all, in winter with snowballs and ice balls, in other seasons with fists, brickbats, and clubs. Dick Peterson was always in the van, yelling, singing, beeing, whirling all the way around when he swung with his right, or if he hadn't brought his mandolin, his left, and missed. He made himself the pitcher on the baseball team because he was the captain. He was the captain because everybody else was afraid to challenge his self-election, except Floyd. Floyd was too lazy to pitch, and he didn't care who was captain because he didn't fully comprehend what that meant. On one occasion, when Earl Baddock, a steamfitter's son, had shut out Mound Street School for six innings without a hit, Dick took him out of the pitcher's box and went in himself. He was hit hard, and the other team scored, but it didn't make much difference because the margin of Sullivan's victory was so great. The team didn't lose a game for five years to another grammar school. When Dick Peterson was in the sixth grade, he got into a saloon brawl and was killed. When I go back to Columbus, I always walk past Sullivan School. I have never happened to get there when classes were letting out, so I don't know what the pupils are like now. I am sure there are no more Dick Petersons and no more Floyds. Unless Floyd is still going to school there. The play yard is still entirely bare of grass and covered with gravel, and the sycamores still line the curb between the schoolhouse fence and the Oak Street car line. 
A streetcar line running past a schoolhouse is a dangerous thing as a rule, but I remember no one being injured while I was attending Sullivan. I do remember, however, one person who came very near being injured. He was a motorman on the Oak Street line, and once when his car stopped at the corner of six to let off passengers, he yelled at Chudy Davidson, who played third base on the ball team and was a member of the terrible fourth, to get out of the way. Chudy was 14 years old, but huge for his age, and he was standing on the tracks taking a chew of tobacco. Come on down off of that car and I'll knock your block off, said Chudy in what I can only describe as a sullivan tone of voice. The motorman waited until Chudy moved slowly off the tracks. Then he went on about his business. I think it was lucky for him that he did. There were boys in those days. I went to Sullivan by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, guitar, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc., Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer was my friend John Dean, and everything else was, as usual, pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 871st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Do not forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Monday Memorial Day. As I said, might be a full encore performance. Might be headlines in an encore. I don't know. If I've got something. You download it. If you've heard it before, don't listen anymore. I won't take it personal. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Trump has the charisma of a mortician. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.